0: welcome to the art school podcast i'm ken goshen Today's episode is 100% packed with nitty-gritty technical advice for painters, so if you're a student of the craft, you're going to love this one. Today we have a different format. I don't have a guest, or rather, I don't have a single guest. Instead, I have a panel of my Patreon supporters asking me their most pressing questions about painting and drawing, and I provide the most thorough answers I can, including my maximally nerdy analysis. Now, I didn't have my mic for this session, so hopefully you'll pardon the suboptimal sound quality. If you find this podcast valuable, please take a moment to rate it highly wherever you're listening, especially on Apple Podcasts, as they weigh listener reviews very heavily. Every five-star review helps this podcast reach more people. So thanks in advance. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. Without their support, it would have been impossible to set aside the time it takes to produce this show so my supporters have my sincere gratitude. You can become a supporter too at patreon.com slash kengoshen, and perhaps your voice will also be featured in my next Ask Me Anything episode. The first question comes to us from my Patreon supporter, Carlise. So let the nerdiness begin. There we go. We have question number one.
1: Hi. Hi. My first question is, um, I love my graphite it's so smooth it's easy however i'm really pushing myself to do charcoal because um i really feel like it's 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 pushing me further however charcoal is a monster do you have any tips or anything uh for an easier transition to charcoal
0: i love that question let me let me uh let me let me try to kind of of pick apart the question because there's there's many kind of um, how to say it there's there's uh, suppositions inherent to it. The question is basically: first, we have to start by asking why are you transitioning to charcoal, right? Because that's that's really go, that's really what's gonna set the tone for whether or not you know you're you're making the right choice for you. So here's here's one example of where it makes perfect sense to transition from charcoal to from graphite to charcoal, which I assume is the underlying condition that we're dealing with here in this question, the fact that for working in oil, starting with charcoal is, is far, far, far more beneficial. And at least for that stated goal, if you're thinking about doing a charcoal drawing as preparation for an oil painting, or as something that you might do before, uh, before you start doing your underpainting or even instead of an underpainting, if your charcoal drawing is really successful, For that purpose, the fact that charcoal is a monster should really not trouble you, right? Because we're not thinking about doing a very refined charcoal drawing. All we're thinking about is, let's make sure that we're getting everything um, positioned correctly so that when we come in with, whether it's the underpainting, the grisaille, or the direct painting process that we're thinking about doing, In all of these cases, uh, everything's going to be okay, even if we haven't gotten to the point where we're drawing eyelashes. It's even deeper than that because, honestly, when you're thinking about charcoal as a means for preparing your, your design for an oil painting, you'd actually do well to use a tool that prevents you from getting into unnecessary detail because it's very likely that if you were to get into unnecessary detail in those early stages, all you're gonna, all you're going to guarantee is that it's going to be more difficult for you to move things around through the early stages of the process, and you're you're going to box yourself in too soon. So specifically for that purpose of of preparing an oil painting, uh, charcoal's monstrosity is a plus. It's not a minus. So now I want to kind of push the question back to you and ask. Is there more to cover? Are you pushing yourself to do charcoal independently of painting? Uh, and if so, why? What are you seeking to gain from charcoal? And then that's going to help us do the pro and con analysis.
1: I don't know. I think I think it is helping me see the bigger picture because I do want to rush into, and that was uh, one of my other questions. I do want to rush into those details. And the charcoal, because of its awkwardness, Chunkiness, unsmooth. Um, I I I have to not look at those details because then they just look like a big fat blob of mess. If I do go into those details, so um,
0: and so I do. Let want, me ask. Let uh-huh. me ask it in a in a slightly. Pardon me for interrupting. No, in a okay. slightly more pointed way. So, are you when you are because you're you're describing a motivation? I'm trying to move away from X towards Y is that the motivation is charcoal is going to be the educational tool. That's going to convince me to not focus on the details too soon. Is that the primary motivation? I think so. Okay. I think
1: so. Uh, Especially because I do want to transition, transition into painting and I do enjoy painting a lot. Um, I, I come from a graphite background, so all of my stuff, all of my previous work has been graphite. And then going into charcoal, it's like, oh, no, I can't do this. It was just um, um, so far away from what I was used to. Um, however, it is pushing me, which is, I think, in in some ways hopefully making me a more conscious artist. I don't know if mm-hmm. that even makes any sense.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, charcoals, uh, we say in Hebrew, kvodobim munach, you know, he has, he has a, uh, he has, res, um, there's respect to be given to charcoal beyond, uh, beyond what it does as an educational tool, right? So for, for, for your stated purpose, um, of, of forcing you to actually look at your reference more holistically and not to dive into details too early. Charcoal is, uh, you know, it solves that problem kind of by design. But uh, as you're, as you're doing it, I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity to advocate for, for charcoal on, uh, to kind of shine a light on, on the charcoal benefits as opposed to just focusing on it as like this is a limited version of, of graphite, because despite the fact that it's limited in its ability to to paint and draw details, it, it has some unbelievably beneficial um, qualities, like for example, my favorite uh, quality about charcoal uh, when you're comparing it to graphite is how quickly it can be erased right when you're when you're holding a, a shami cloth, for example, which is you know, it's not actually a cloth. It's, it's, it's a piece of deer skin. but when you're using a Shami cloth and you like wipe it across this, uh, uh, a mark of dark charcoal, that charcoal immediately disappears. And as far as I'm concerned, when you're doing the preliminary, uh, preliminary design, uh, stages, the majority of what's happening is erasure, right? You're thinking, should this be here? Nah, it should probably not be here. Should it be here? Mm, probably not. Mm, It's almost here, but maybe move it a bit. It's like almost 50, 50% erasing and applying. Now for erasing graphite, super annoying because you're like, (laughs) erase, 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 erase. it just slows down the process. So fundamentally it's frustrating. So when you're trying to get started, what you want to, what you want to like prevent is a loss of momentum. You want to be able to work fast and, and really block in everything um, in, a, in a nice, dynamic, action-packed, um, how do you say, activity. But, you know, with a graphite, I because I used to do that uh, back in the day, uh, you find that you put down a line. And especially if you put down the line f- sufficiently forcefully so, such that the line is visible, which is also not to be taken for granted with graphite, because a lot of the lines, when you work loosely in the beginning, Uh, it's factors of invisibility. You know, you can't even see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then whenever you want to change a line, erasing takes forever. Mm -hmm. And I find that almost always the outcome of that is you settle for things Mm -hmm. because you're just like, I can't erase that line anymore. Like I've erased it 10,000 times and then you just end up, okay, whatever. That's where that line is. It leads Mm -hmm. to this point of despair where you're just like, I'm going to leave it the way it is. That's, that's, that's kind of like the, the, where, where graphite goes. It's, it's a medium that uh, has an undertone of compromise to it. With charcoal, it's like you can erase it as many times as you want, and it's going to be fast. It's, it's going to hurt the paper far less because graphite, when it's, when it's a sharp pencil, it very easily leaves scars in the paper, uh, and we don't like that. Um, so that's a huge benefit of charcoal. The, mm-hmm. second, the second thing that I really appreciate uh, about charcoal that really doesn't come across with pencil is the fact that charcoal uh, does does justice to values much, much, much more. You know, with, mm-hmm. with pencil, again, if you want to go dark, it's like, oh, talk to me tomorrow, man. I'm going to just put a ton of graphite on it mm-hmm. for like t- 10 hours before it goes you know, sufficiently dark. It takes forever to get something to be satisfyingly dark in in graphite. And then it could be like a horrific turn of events when you're like, oh yeah, I finally arrived at the degree of dark that I'm looking for. And oops, it's it's not perfectly located. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to have to move it, but I can't because that's going to leave a horrible scar on the paper. So it's just, you run into a wall all the time when you work with graphite. When with charcoal, you can, how long does it take to put a dark value in charcoal? approximately one second. You just break the charcoal in half. You know, you have a nice little chunk and you make a dark mark and it's dark. And then if you want to move it, all right, you take the shami cloth, boom, you erase it. And you can erase it almost completely and very, very, very fast. So it helps you actually design composition by relying more on values uh, than you would have otherwise been able to do with pencil. And if I were to try to summarize the difference between them, Graphite is more akin to sculpting in marble. Every move mm-hmm. is a little bit more permanent, more precise, but more permanent. And, char- and charcoal is more similar to sculpting in clay. It's more dynamic. You can add and subtract, move mm-hmm. things around. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. much more malleable. It doesn't arrive at the crisp, pristine quality of marble, but there's some stuff that you can't, you know, you cannot accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so charcoal is like, the prime example of charcoal, aka um, clay modeling. Did I say clay? Yeah. Okay. Clay. Clay yeah. modeling. Marble. Clay marble. Clay versus marble. Yeah. So that's like <laughs> charcoal versus versus pencil. Clay versus marble is like Rodin versus Michelangelo, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Evil, uncompromising, strict, unchanging, and then Rodin, dynamic, moving, fluid. You know, that's, that's the vibe. And, and both of them have something totally different to offer. So beyond the, the you know, taking it as a vitamin supplement for your uh, obsession, uh, for your detail obsession, try to embrace the fact that, okay, so I'm not, I'm not gaining those things that graphite knows how to give me, but there's other good stuff that you could actually be embracing and, and trying to enjoy it. And I think that's going to make the transition more fun. Okay. Thank you. For sure, I appreciate right. it. <laughs> of course, all right, Natalie. Hey, Natalie.
2: Hello. Um, my question is: um, I'm extremely new to oil painting. Uh, just dabbled a little bit, and I guess I still don't know how it all works. Like, I get sometimes it muddies because I'm mixing. I'm trying to go over a spot too soon. I know watercolors and so that dries really fast and you can quickly go back into the same spot. And, um, so for someone who's just learning oil painting, where would you suggest we start as far as learning? I just get so overwhelmed with all the options of what to learn. Like I need a lot of color help. I don't know a lot of color, but I also don't know the medium at all really. So where would you suggest a very, very new painter to start?
0: Love it. Love this question. really great question. Super loaded. There's a lot to say. So basically we're asking we're asking questions that are uh, geared towards what I picked up as preventing muddy colors and com- a comparison between what works in watercolor and what works in oil and how to kind of mitigate those differences. So first, let's let's be very, very clear about what causes muddy colors in oil paint. There's basically two culprits for this, as far as I'm concerned, and how to mitigate uh, and prevent these two things from from happening. So the first thing, which I'm sure is what you're dealing with, is is a limitation that exists in the medium of oil paint. So first, let's de-romanticize what oil paint is. What oil paint is, is very, very simply glue that has... Colored powder inside. That's it. It's not some kind of magical thing that, that you know comes at us from, from, from the heavens. No, it's just a kind of glue, dries pretty slowly, and people who are great at making paint for us jam packed a colorful powder into it. Now, the limitation of this very earthly and and uh, deromanticized material is that when you mess with it too much after it's been applied to the surface it turns into mud right what what oil painting what oil paint expects from us the painters is this kind of behavior we put the paint on we say damn that's a really good color and then it's like let me just soften that edge a bit that's it that's all you can do now When you walk around the museum and and you see masterpieces by people like, you know, the old masters, Rembrandt, Velasquez, and, and, you know, you know, it was painted 400 years ago, but it looks like it was painted 45 minutes ago. It's because that freshness is, is a, is a function of knowing how to put the paint down and let it go and not futz with it. Now I know, I know where this is going because now you're asking, well, what do I do if I put down a color? And I'm dissatisfied with it. It's not a good color. So like, I can't follow your system, man. Well, the response is the following. You grab the, where did I put it? Here we go. So let's say your color is bad. Welcome to the palette knife clan. What you do is once the color is there and you're dissatisfied with it, you don't want to mess with it on the painting. You want to scrape it away, bring it back to the palette and mix it flawlessly. So basically the underlying suggestion uh, that is is happening here is I'm advocating for, especially in a transition from watercolor, I'm advocating for more time on the palette, less time on the painting. You know, a painting, what makes it look really fun is this, this feeling of freshness and this feeling of effortlessness. Pro tip is even if you spend 20 hours on the palette mixing the most beautiful colors in the world and this is torture you're there on the path you're like it's not the green I want it's not the green I want it's not the green I want at the end you reach the green you want and you touch the painting once and the painting feels effortless despite how tortured you felt on the palette that feeling is is not gonna gonna transfer over to the painting and that's the beauty of painting the beauty of painting is that you can kind of keep it effortless while still making it extraordinarily accurate. And that has to do with this addition of the third-party agent that we don't have when we work with graphite or with, or with charcoal, the palette. So I'm advocating more palette time, less canvas time in order to, to prevent this, this one, uh, one iteration of muddiness. This, is, this, is, this was still number one. This is what happens when you touch the paint too much after it's already been applied. Uh, let me put this away. Otherwise, I'm going to be waving it at you all evening. Um, second way that we are creating mud and how to prevent it also stems from understanding uh, what oil paint really is. You know, the the again the fact that it's just glue with the with colored powder inside. So what ends up happening with that is we have to understand the limitations of color mixing because when we mix blue and, and yellow, for example. What we tend to think is that, oh, we have created a new color called green. But in effect, what happened is it's it is not the case that now the two powders, the two pigment powders that were yellow and blue, have now transfigured into a green powder. But rather they are now uh, you know, ensconced and, and they are in close proximity to each other, such that because we can't see, you know, we can't see the pigment powder up close we experience it as green. So there is no chemical mixture here. It's, it's, it's purely optical mixture, right? So because of that reason, every time you mix two colors, you don't get the sum of the chroma. You get the sum of the chroma minus X, all right? You, something, some part of the color is lost whenever you, you introduce a new color into the mix. So for example, it almost doesn't matter how rigorous you are on the on the palette. If you mix into the same um, how do you call it uh, pile of paint? I don't know how to call it spot of paint. If you mix ten different pigments in there, it's mud. Doesn't matter what you do. Just too many powders inside inside of the same glue. It doesn't translate to to optical mixture that our eye can enjoy. It's not going to look luminous anymore. So another rule of thumb if you're experiencing problems with muddy colors is just limit yourself. Every mixture doesn't matter what color you're trying to mix. Every mixture should be arrived at with no more, no more than five pigments, including white. No more. If you find that you've selected five pigments to try to arrive at your color and it's nowhere near, and it's not about adding more or less quantity of each of those given five pigments, chuck that color, start over. You know, I try to get, I try to get there in three. I try to get them in there in four. When it's five, I'm like pushing my limit. But this is a very, very, very good rule of thumb to prevent muddy colors. So if you follow these two best practices, muddy colors are going to be a thing of the past. Now, last recommendation that I'm going to give to a watercolor painter transitioning into oil, just because I've seen this mistake kind of recur again and again. And it, it has to do with the fundamental difference between these two mediums. Watercolor painting relies very, very heavily on the white of the paper in order to express, you know, the bright areas. In oil, if you rely on the white of the paper, you're toast. You're totally, totally toast. It just doesn't work. And that has to do with the fact that part of the strength of oil painting is how well it can express, you know, the mixtures of light colors, you know, and, and specifically when you look at the old masters, they put their light colors to work. That's where they put up the most texture, impasto, bold colors. Like what you see when you look at a Rembrandt in the lights is like the whole thing is, is sculptured and, 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 and really, really juicy, you know, it's, it's applied very thickly. And with people who come from watercolor, I tend to see a lot of like holding back on the lights because you're very used to, to, to use up your paper for that brightness. So here's a, here's a tip for how to prevent that from happening to you anymore. You don't, this is now a rule. This applies to everybody. All right. You just don't paint on white canvases anymore. What you do when you buy canvases is you immediately mix some raw umber or burnt umber with some solvent and you, paint that canvas either in a muted brown or in a gray or something like that. Bring it to a middle value such that when you want to make a dark mark, you put a dark mark and it looks dark. And when you want to make a light mark, you put a light mark and it looks light. You want your surfaces before you start painting to be a middle for oil painting, which of course in watercolor would be a death blow to your composition. But in oil, that's really what you want. So I feel like that's the, those are the best three tips that I can give any watercolor painter transitioning into oil. Does that make sense?
2: Very good.
0: Thank you, Natalie. Okay. Hey, Vicki. There we go. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Nice to meet you.
3: Good. Good to be here. Um, And thank you for hosting this. I really appreciate it.
0: Happy to do it. This is fun.
3: (laughs) Um, I have a question and this is seems to be an area of contention for a lot of artists, which is Ooh, brushes, sure. right? Like, don't worry about how much a brush a brush costs. Don't worry about using synthetic versus natural. Um, maybe don't, you know, use a brush. Maybe just, and I know that that can depend on what, what you're trying to get. If you're trying to get more of like an impasto look, like you, you're going to want to use maybe a palette knife, um, something like that. Do you personally... Have any recommendations or any thoughts about how should you approach, um, you know, brushes as an oil painter?
0: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step by step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step by step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, if, uh, if, if, If when you said don't worry about, and then you input data, you can send them my way. I'll be happy to do a public (laughs) like. Yeah, these these things really do matter, and I I would definitely worry about them. And and every every kind of brush, you know, has a has a different use. You know, they're tools, right? So if you if you put tools to work, and and you you put them to work in the wrong way, then the the tools are not going to be serving you. Okay, so basically the way that I like to think about it is okay. There's so much to say. Let me just try to, to put my mind in order to address this properly. The first, the first thing that I want to let's, let's kind of divide what can be said about different brushes. And then you can make sure that I don't forget to discuss any of those topics. Okay. So brushes most importantly are either stiff or soft broadly. They're either big or small broadly. Okay. And, uh, and well, let's leave let's leave price out of the picture for now because I want to make sure that we cover what they actually do. So let's first discuss the difference between the soft brushes and the hard brushes, and and oh, and how they relate to the surface. That's also very important. What surface you're working on because a brush can do something when you're working on linen that would totally not happen if you're working on wood. Okay, so that is also something that we have to discuss. So when you're working with a with with a painting. What you're What you're doing is basically you have a process that's a little bit similar to building a building. right? When you're building a building or any kind of, of, of ambitious project, what happens is you you start by using tools that are not the same tools that you start when you're finishing up. So for example, in the building example, what do you use first? Things that are very aggressive, like dynamite, tractors, things that are noisy, that move like mountains from here to here, clear the rubble. Uh, but then, when the building, you know, as it gets built up, what happens is, you know, if I wanna, you know, polish my 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 wall before I put up my wallpaper, I'm not gonna use dynamite anymore. I need to transition towards tools that are more refined. So I'm gonna use sandpaper. I'm gonna use a spatula. But conversely, if I take sandpaper and I try to use it to clear the rubble that the dynamite was used for, that that just means I'm going to be there for 10,000 years trying to like sand away a piece of rock. So we have to understand when the aggressive tools are merited and when the delicate tools are merited. And the rule of thumb for that is generally when you start a painting, much like when you start a building, you want to work with the aggressive, stiffer brushes, the harder brushes, uh, preferably the ones that are, you know, the ones I like, are natural hog bristle. Uh, They they are kind of pale color. And um, I really like that because in the beginning, you don't know what's up. You know, you're starting, there's nothing there. So what you need, you need tools that can make big changes happen without laboring on them. You need, for example, when you're doing your underpainting, you're working with a lot of solvent. And it's very important to, for example, have a brush that's able to to move all that big amount of paint or even to erase, you can take a bristle brush, dip it into solvent and, and use it to actually remove paint, which is something that you know you would not be able to do if you were using soft brushes. Because if you're using soft brushes, what happens is you lift an amount of paint, you kind of put it down and it just kind of gets stuck there. And it doesn't matter how hard you press, you can't pull it over vast distances because that pulling over vast different uh, distances um, activity really depends on the fibers being able to take take in that force and it doesn't bend all the way. Now, on the other hand, if everything's already built and you have your your design very solidly in place, and now you want to deal with some finer nuances, also known as sometimes details, then working with the hard brushes is going to be very problematic because, again, they're not built for it. They're built for moving big shapes around, applying big values around. But once that stuff's already built and you want to say, okay, like I like where the cheek is at. I just want to kind of refine it, add this tiny bit of transition of a rosy hue, like right at the edge of the cheek. And it's like a delicate little activity. You take the soft brush for that. You know, you can't really do that with the hard brush. So essentially the rule of thumb is going to be something like when you start air on aggressive stuff so that you can make big movements. And as you come closer to the finish line, you want to transition to softer and more refined things that are going to, that are going to get you, you know, over the finish line. And there's of course the middle point, the synthetics, you know, so between the natural bristles, which are the hardest brushes, very, very recommended. And let's say the softest brushes, which are like sable or all that, like, really expensive furry things, uh, furry animals. In the middle, you have synthetics that are kind of like not as soft as the sables, but not as hard as the bristles. Um, then th- those those are very useful for the middle of the process. So you could say if, it, if it's like my painting, I very often for early layers, bristle, middle layers, synthetics, last layers, sables. Um, and of course, this also depends on the kind of painting you want to make. Like, for example, if you want to make something that looks like a Da Vinci, super polished or like a Raphael where everything is smooth, smooth, smooth with like the, the or Ang, right? That It barely looks like there's any brushstroke there. Then of course, you know, the sables are going to come in much earlier, right? Because they are the, the, the majority of the process. But if you are looking to make something like Sargent, where it's like bold brushstrokes or something like Monet, you know, where you really see the color, even in the last layers, you know, you you don't get to the point where where you really polish up something, something really pretty and, and whatever. It's it's all about the energy and the boldness. Well, then maybe it's bristles all the way around, you know, because that's what bristles do. You can't really paint Monet's water lilies with sables. Like it's just, it, it ain't happening. Putting all that thick color on there is just, it's not going to work. So it's knowing about, what tool does what, when to use which tool, and for how long, which will eventually depend on your personal artistic preferences. Uh, another thing to add is about the size of brushes. I tend to think you should kind of always use the largest brush that can get the job done. That's that's my take on it. You know, As long as you can get that job done with a big brush, do it with a big brush because when you're working with small brushes for too long, your painting is going to feel a little anemic. You know, it's not, it, you know, the small brushes, again, they, they, they. sometimes you really need them to add like the cherry on top of the cake, but they're not going to build the cake, you know? So you're just going to have a cake that's just like a pile of cherries. You know, it's tasty, but it's no cake. So it's kind of, it's kind of not the best habit. To rely too heavily on on the smaller brushes because they they really don't in they don't um inject the painting with enough energy and enough life that's like kind of kind of the I'm trying to find a like a good analogy for that it's like here's here's an analogy think about the soft brushes as like the violin solo in the orchestra, but you can't have the whole orchestra be the violin solo right you need these moments where it's like the double bass and the brass section and all that stuff—that's the majority of the orchestra's song. And then you know it culminates to a peak where it's like then you hear the violin solo and you know you've built up to that moment, but you can't have that moment, uh, kind of overtake everything else because that's that's like an issue. Uh, so that's about size. And then regarding the the relationship of the kinds of brushes that you have uh, and how it relates to the to the surfaces the more textured your surface is, the more it will probably push you in the direction of aggressive brushes. Because if you have a texture that's very, 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 very textured, like a linen, then if you try to work on it on a sable, the sable is just going to get stuck. You know, it's it's just not going to move the paint at all. And actually the surface might hurt your sable brush because the sable brush is such a prima donna. However, if you're working on just... Um, if you're, if, you're, if you're working on uh, just like a smooth surface of wood, let's say, or just wood with shellac or just wood with gesso that's completely, completely, completely smooth, then it's possible that a sable brush is going to be sufficiently aggressive to produce what a bristle would do uh, on a canvas because there's no resistance. So it's almost like it, you're like ice skating on top of that smooth surface And if you were to try to use a bristle brush on something that's so, so, so smooth, you're just going to end up moving too much of the paint and you're going to see scratches, right? So this is the equation, like hard versus soft beginning to the end. But the more smooth your surface is, the more you're leaning in this direction and the more textured, the more you're leaning in that direction. So this is as analytical as I can get about that. Does that make sense?
3: Yes, um, that makes sense. I tend to be more of what you call an anemic painter because I think typically I work um, in oil, but it's like, they're cute little sizes, like five by seven, eight by 10. So I am using typically softer brushes. Like you were saying, like don't go in right away with your sables. That's what I love to use. <laughs> so um, I do have hog bristle and things like that, but I feel like it's so scratchy. Like really scratchy and I'm working on linen mm. so it's soft it's a very like it's like four maybe primed like it's double primed triple primed mm. um, linen so it's very slick so I use my sables but I think maybe what I
0: something even smaller.
3: smoother
0: size I, I think I think I think you might since I'm kind of on your side you know I, I also work small. Uh, and I, I work small and I do kind of what I consider to be pretty explosive a la prima style painting. And, mm-hmm. and for those, I also really, really love my, my sables, mm-hmm. but they're very, very smooth surfaces, like very. So I think for your specific uh, style, mm-hmm. try working on small panels of wood. You know, I think you're going to really, really like it. Or even take some hot-pressed paper that's like completely smooth and coated in shellac or like a few coats of gesso. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very compatible. If you're working on these tiny sizes, that's it's kind of like the Van Van Eyck, uh, the, yeah. the the Van Eyck tradition, right? And 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 Van Eyck, if you told him to do what he's trying to do on linen, he'd reject your commission immediately. Like Van <laughs> Eyck stuff is like. Triple gesso that's like sanded between every layer, so you see he, his surfaces are like smooth enough so you know we can we can slip on them if we're not wearing you know if we're wearing socks it's like super slippery, so yeah, I think that you might be able to push your 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 de- your degree of control even even farther the more you reduce the surface tension uh so I'd be really interested uh in seeing what happens if you if you kind of give give wood a try or, or give uh, hard, uh hot pressed paper a try. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I think
3: I can do that. Thank you. I appreciate your um, For sure. answering that question. Thank you. Oh,
0: brilliant question. All right. Who's next? So Natalie, how's it going?
2: Um, okay. Now my question is you talk, I've seen some of your Instagram posts about chroma and I'm just really confused. Can you, to give the chroma talk at like a really simple child level.
0: <laughs> okay, i'm gonna I'm gonna try. Uh, though chroma is the most difficult thing to understand about color, so uh, I'm gonna try to make it as simple as possible, but I'll throw the ball back to you if you think you don't understand. Okay, So basically, the easiest way to understand what chroma is in my opinion is distance from gray all right, the more a color is gray, the less it is chromatic. So graphic designers call this saturation. So for example, let's just say, uh, are you familiar with Photoshop at all? Yeah. So what happens when you take an image and then you bring the saturation dial until it becomes a black and white image, that is chroma reduction uh, in painterly terms. So when you're talking about a color being too chromatic, what you basically mean is, hey, I like how dark it is. Hey, I like that it's red, but hey, shouldn't be that red. Put some gray in there, you know, make it a little bit grayer. And when people when people deal with color, the the most common issue is out of the three properties that that color has, people deal with with, with the, with the most, with the least important one obsessively, and they forget about the two most important ones. So for example, not for example, uh, to elaborate on what I'm trying to say is that people focus on the color property called hue way too much. Hue is whether, where the color falls on the color wheel. Like, is it green? Is it blue? Is it yellow? Is it like all that kind of stuff? All, all, all the, all the names that we know to give colors when we're kids those are hues. And these things barely matter, unfortunately. Uh, what really matters most, like the fast, most important part of color, is value. Value, the degree to which something is dark or light. Like let's say, for example, that I got, I'm painting a portrait. And I got all the values spot on, but I tilted all my hues blue. I get the avatar people. Right, it's still going to look three-dimensional. Still going to look pretty human. Going to be convincingly uh, responsive to the light effects. Going to feel like weighty. It's going to feel like there's atmosphere around it. Just going to be a blue person, but a person nonetheless. And that is controlled uh, by the values. So everything you can accomplish in a black and white photograph, uh, which is kind of like everything that has to do with with illusion and making your 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 picture feel three-dimensional, this this is value control. Now, chroma is the second most important thing, the second most important thing, because what would prevent our avatar person from, from functioning in their beautifully avatarish universe is if everything is not only blue, but crazy saturated blue, then it's like, okay, we can't look at this, right? Because this, there has to be a hierarchy of the moments where that blue is very saturated, very chromatic, and areas where that blue is more gentle, more delicate, aka less chromatic aka closer to gray so the balance between gray colors and chromatic colors is the most overly looked most commonly overlooked aspect of color and and really the the most difficult thing to to get get people to see and uh, and, and and very very important then hue is like the last thing so for example let's say i'm whatever. I'm painting a person and then I'm identifying value correctly. Like, let's say it's value number eight, very, very light. And I'm identifying the chroma. The chroma is kind of medium. Like it's not very colorful, but it's also not completely gray, nice and mild. And then instead of naming it correctly as orange, I name it as red. This phenomenon is known as who cares? It's gonna work. Gonna work. You know, I have yet to meet that. I've taught probably hundreds of students I haven't met the person who misses the hue so fundamentally that it crashes the painting like if you're missing it and instead of yellow you call it green like even our hue errors are almost definitionally insignificant so you kind of you kind of can allow yourself to take hue a little bit for granted like if it's green I trust you you're going to see it's green maybe you're going to call it greenish blue it's going to work just nail the value so that it's as dark or as light as it needs to be, and nail the degree to which it's either bold or muted, which is chroma. Super, super, super important. Makes, does that make sense as, a, as an explanation for...
2: Yes, that was the most clear I've heard it explained, so thank you so much.
0: Brilliant. Okay, that's very, very, very encouraging, because now I can see a room full of people who will take chroma seriously, uh and uh, that will lead to very positive consequences so uh ellen you're on uh yes um talking about color
1: um are you familiar with the munsell book yeah well do you, i'm i'm taking a course um and they're using the munsell system
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh and they're talking about the book but you know, of course, you don't have to buy it. But so I was wondering, you think
0: I should buy it? Let me tell you what I think about that. What? I Think it's a great thing for someone to buy for you because it's very expensive. <laughs> it's, a, I know, I know. it's a very expensive book. Like at least a hundred dollars. Did you say seven hundred? Is that how much? No, no, what there are old
1: copies or famous copies or something. But uh, no, you can get one for ninety-five dollars.
0: Okay. $95. I mean, I know it's out of my budget range. Uh, but, uh, if you have, if you have, you know, money to spend on, on books, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a good, it's a good book. You know, it's not, it's not a bad book. Uh, for me, it's, um, slightly redundant cause I'm, I'm very, very familiar with the Mensell system and I, I kind of don't feel like I, I need it. Uh, but if you are going to buy it and then you know, follow up by doing the mixing exercises and and color matching to the chips could be fun. I mean, it's it's just, and I, I don't want people to take this the wrong way, but I am a huge nerd and it's a little too nerdy for me. So that yeah. means it's like the level of nerdery that it takes in order for people to sit with those Munsell chips and color match to them is like next level I mean and I'm all about color charts, but it's just like I've seen people spend so many days matching these colors, and then it doesn't it doesn't immediately translate to being good painters you know it's uh so i i kind of i'm more like put your feet in the fire kind of person like let's make paintings, you know let's make paintings let's be very rigorous about how well these paintings are coming out let's give very pointed critiques. Let's shoot for the best and, and, and let's not sand over any mistake that we see. Like I'm, I'm absolutely uncompromising in that respect, but you can't sit me down for a day to match chips. It's, it's hard. So it's a, it's a temperamental thing. And if you feel like that's uh, how you want to spend your next summer or whatever, then, then for sure, it's a, good, it's a good book. What I almost want, I heard rumors that you can get the Mansell model three-dimensionally, which that to me sounds like a fun sculpture to have in the <laughs> Really expensive. Yeah. Oh, is it still? How much is that? I think it's a thousand. Oh, 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 see that one's that one is fun. That I'm like, oh my god! If there's ever like a bootleg version like that, I that sculpture is is so amazingly clarifying. I I would love like a three dimensional model of it, uh, in in a virtual version. So just so that I can show students and like spin it around, that would be an amazing mm-hmm. teaching tool. But, uh, again, my, my summary is if you are very familiar with the theory and you feel like you understand what's going on, then kind of like, why, if you're not going to bring it to, to, to use it, to teach people, I feel like it's a good teaching tool. Basically. Uh, if I was still going to teach at Parsons, I might grab that book and, and, and show my students and, and get Parsons to pay for it. You know? Yes. Okay. Thank you. For Sure all right people let's say there we go Katy, you're on
4: hi can you guys hi. hear me
0: yeah hi. nice to meet you
4: nice to meet you as well um i have i have um two questions but they both relate to the same thing okay so i know it's not you're not supposed to draw from pictures like photographs um, in the in the sense that somebody else has already done the work of translating a three-dimensional thing to two dimensions. Um, but whenever I try to draw from three dimensions, I have several problems. And this is where my two questions come in. So the first question is, I find it really hard to even decide how to draw it. So I was hoping that you had some compositional tips. And the other question is that, Um, For me, because I'm starting and I need a lot of time to make a lot of mistakes, um, it takes me a while. (laughs) And for that reason, like if I want to draw something that um, like a flower that changes really quickly or I want to draw something um, that, you know, is affected by natural lighting. And if I even spend like just two hours, um, everything changes or even if I accidentally bump into it and everything moves. Um, all of that makes it very difficult for me because I don't have a photographic memory. So I was hoping that you also had any advice on, uh, I don't know, like dealing with those kinds of practical issues.
0: Yeah, uh, this sounds to me more than practical. There's a conceptual dimension to it. Uh, because we have, to, we, have to, um, we have to distinguish between the things that are healthy and worthwhile to do in order to improve at the craft and the things that are worthwhile to do in order to produce your artistic output. These two things, unfortunately, are very commonly conflated. Right. And so, what I mean by that, if I were to analogize it to, for example, sports, let's say we're doing, uh, we're trying to train basketball. Right. So, if I'm, if I'm practicing basketball, I'm not just playing multiple games of basketball again and again. I'm, I'm isolating the different parts of the game of basketball. Like, for example, I just practice my dribbling, then I just practice shooting the hoops, then I just practice whatever, guarding a, a, another person, and then all those things after I've been, you know, I I took the game apart, I practiced every individual element of the game, and then I bring them together and we play the game, right? So essentially what I'm trying to say by that is that there are things that are fantastic or necessary evils in order to create your artistic production, but that will hinder you in learning. So all I'm going to say about photographs now has to do with the learning process, because I'm not gonna fool myself or fool you and say that I don't sometimes have to use photograph despite the fact that I hate it. Because if I'm doing a commission portrait, I'm not gonna convince that person to come over and sit for me for as long as I need. It's just not the reality that we live in anymore. So I'm forced to use photographs, uh, but that is for the artistic production. You know, They pay me for the painting, so I'll endure the photo. But if I'm trying to improve, trying to learn, uh, then the photograph is, as you've described, problematic. So that's, that's, just, a, that's just setting the premise uh, straight uh, and, and giving photographs their, their due. Uh, now, if the issue really is the fact that you are finding it difficult to draw things that move or change, what you want to do is pick things that change less. That's one thing. Like, for example, if you take a piece of bread, that doesn't change a lot. If you take something that's uh, whatever, like a flower, of course, is going to die very quickly, but an apple probably won't. You can have a few good days with an apple. But the thing that changes more than the object is the light. You know, the fact that the light changes influences everything about the drawing. Because if the light changes a little bit, then the shadow shapes are moving, and then you have really nothing to hold on to. So the most important thing, if you're working from life, is to make sure that you have stable lighting. So either, you know, make sure that the way that you're positioning your object that you're, you're practicing with has like a table lamp, shining a light from the side, something that you can just turn on and off and it's, it's not going to move. Or if you're working with natural light, you know, the the most the most stable light that you could get is the northern light because of the way that the earth relates to the sun right there's if if you're if you're using a, a window that faces east there's a ton of light in the morning when it's sunrise but then after 12 it's dark in the room west the opposite during sunset you get a ton of red light but all throughout the day it's dark but north is 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 is, is the exposure that is the most stable throughout the day so my my studio is, is all Northern Exposure. So that helps me keep my light very, very, very stable. So that's, that's one thing. You know, you want to paint objects that change less and make sure that the light changes less. These are two things that are very, very important. But even better, even better than that, you want something that changes 0%, work from a painting, work from a painting. It's not coincidental that I have a ton of paintings here behind me it's the best way to learn, you know. It's it's the least creative thing because I'm just following in the footsteps of the of the masters. But once you can replicate to some degree a Velázquez or a Rembrandt or a Vermeer, then you have kind of you've kind of uh, I don't know how to say it in English. You've um, adopted those tools. You've adopted those those methods, and then you can use them uh, in your own practice. So if I had to give credit to Anything that has really saved me from the complete abyss of inability in, in, in drawing when I was just starting out, it's copies. Because I, I went to a painting school where uh, every day, you know, we would paint the model from, from morning till, till evening. I did that for, for three years. But for the first few months, you know, I was, I was in class and I couldn't do anything. Any, like, I, everything was turning out just horrifically. And I was, like, really frustrated because everybody else was were much more successful than me. And so I just decided that I, I had to take a proactive, a proactive step to catch up to everybody else. And what I did is I, I told myself, like, I'm just not working from life anymore. I'm only going to do copies. So I stood in the back of the class. And as everybody was having a lot of fun with the live model... I was diligently trying to, to, to do master copies. And during the first month, people were just asking me like, why you're paying tuition? Like you could be doing this at home. Like you're not using the model time. And I'm like, that's a stupid way to think because I'm, the best way for me to waste model time is to stand in front of the model when I don't know how to draw. That's, that's wasting tuition. Uh, and after five months of doing exclusively copies, I felt like I had a lot more confidence. And then I moved into drawing the model, and I don't like showing off, but let's just say I wasn't the worst student in class anymore. This, I I think, again, I don't like showing off, but I don't think you, you can improve more than I did in five months because I focused on what's pragmatically, functionally beneficial is to stare for long hours at the masters of the craft and decode how they did what they did. That's why this is such a core principle in how I teach because I've seen it work for me. uh, And there's nothing that really taught me more. And, And you can analogize that to music, right? Let's say you're starting to learn piano. What's first lesson? Are you composing? You're not composing until like year two. You're doing Bach. You're doing Mozart. You're doing things that are not considered creative. You're following in the footsteps of the masters after playing Bach, after playing Mozart, you kind of find your rhythm and, uh, and, and from there on you can kind of feel more comfortable in, in, in starting to, to produce things that are more creative. But you, you really want to start with the educational and build towards the creative. And the least creative but the most educational, master copies. So the longer you stare at those greats, uh, it's, like, uh, it's like eating your salad. You know, not the tastiest thing, but very healthy for you. Does that make sense?
4: Yes. Yeah, so that that makes perfect sense. Um, yes. Yeah, so in that case, I'll just do what you said and focus on copying people who knew what they were doing because I don't. <laughs> and hopefully that way, I will pick up um, on some of their knowledge just by observing their techniques. And once I have the knowledge, I can apply it creatively.
0: May... Yeah. So thank you so much. Of yeah. course. And let me let me just let me just. Uh, I don't know where you're from. But the, the most fun way to do this that doesn't feel like, for example, just I, I totally understand how sitting in front of your computer and staring at Titian is a bummer. Uh, but it's really not a bummer to take your sketchbook out to the museum, and museums are starting to reopen again, and I don't know if there's a museum where you're at, but that would be where I would start. You know, grab a sketchbook, just, some, just pencils, you know nothing complicated. Go to the museum, spend the day. A day. If you can spend like a day every two weeks, like two days a month, but a full day, you versus whoever. You know, whoever, who's your favorite?
4: I don't have one.
0: Oh, <laughs> <I> can't <laughs> draw this way. This is not happening. You know, that's not happening. That's like trying to learn guitar without l- l- hearing about Led Zeppelin. That can't be. You know, you have to have. You have to have absolute like. You have to um, to be really saturated with art historical environment in order to like this can kind of come into you through osmosis but you have to be there where it, where it happens you have to be in the room and so you can't not have a favorite paint like you do you have a top five
4: um no <laughs> so i have okay. some that i like but the reason why i don't have a top five is that i don't know all the painters out there so um the like Sargent, like you mentioned or the the copies you've been doing i forget his name it sounds french but they, I, they're beautiful. Ink,
0: <laughs> ink <laughs> um, is my favorite.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, ink. Um, so yeah, so those are beautiful. They're really, really beautiful. But the reason why I don't have a favorite is because there's so many painters out there, and I feel hmm. like it would be unfair to say I have a favorite when I have so many. Oh, I see. Movies. So
0: it's a diplomatic answer. It's not. It's not. It's not due to the fact that you don't know. It's because you're. 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 You are you are you do not want to insult Rembrandt. I get it. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I get a lot of that because you know I'm Israeli. I'm very direct. And people are like, what do you mean Rembrandt's number three? He's number three. It's a dignified spot and he should be happy, you know, it's okay. And it's just my rankings. So that should, that should be totally legitimate. But yeah, sketchbook museums, that's, that's where I, that's where I would uh, suggest you go.
4: Thanks so much. I'm I'm going to try. try.
0: All right, people, I think uh, we're going to call it here for this time. Uh, It was a lot of fun and, you know, keep those pencils sharp. Take care. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreoncom kengoshen For online lessons, please visit slash lessons Thanks again and see you next time.